Take a network break. Choose from the finest selection of virtual donuts as we trip merrily through this week's tech news, including new products and features from Cisco and Pluribus, new developments with ARM, fab contamination, and space networking. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Nokia. Nokia's SR Linux Network OS and its fabric services system enable data center automation, observability, and software-defined operations, the essential building blocks for web scalers that want to build more consumable data center services. Find out more at nokia.ly slash consumable dash networks. That's Nokia nokia.ly slash consumable dash networks. Uh, and if you haven't heard it yet, maybe you want to check out Heavy Strategy. It's the newest podcast in the Packet Pushers Network. It's Greg Farrow and Joanna Till Johnston giving you things to think about. Yeah, that's the, the, our motto for the show is uh, where the questions are probably more useful than the answer. What we're trying to do is ask questions. And instead of answering them, we're trying to debate them or argue them or take two sides of a coin and go backwards and forwards on and it, it ranges from business strategy to technology strategy to process and that type of stuff. So it's very different from the normal packet pushes, which is much more um, product centric to much more of a highfalutin lift sort of a thing. And uh, probably the most outstanding thing is that we actually argue rather than just agree with each other how clever we are. So, And we're not trying to tell you what to think. We're just trying to tell you what we think and maybe that'll help you get your thoughts in order or you can take that back to the job and find out how it works. Yeah. Yeah, I think you found a good sparring partner in Jonah because you two know how to uh, argue uh, politely, I think. Oh, no, it's not so much politely, but argue without rancor or, you know, so many times when right. you argue, debate. There, there's no hostility. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just we're coming at it from two, but most often we end up agreeing, which is, you know, agreeing that each other has a point. Like most things in IT, there's never, <laughs> you know, it's not usually a polarized debate. You know, I'm on this side, you're on yes. that side or... You know, it depends. Yeah, it always depends. There's always a use case, as you as you will find when we talk on network break. We always say this is a good idea, but that might not be a useful idea overall. Or you know, for some group of people, this is a solution for them, but is this a big enough solution to make a market and that sort of thing? So those are the sorts of, and so it's debating the grays, if you like. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah, check it out. Uh, you can find it on packetpushers.net. Just look for Heavy Strategy. And now we will get to our news. First, Cisco, they're enhancing the capabilities of their SD-WAN product to get users to cloud-based services faster. They are announcing specific integrations for Microsoft 365 and Cisco WebEx. Uh, first, the company recently announced cloud on-ramp for Microsoft 365. Admins can set policies based on granular URLs to determine if a session should go directly to Microsoft or through a security stack at the data center or through some other uh, third-party service. Uh, I think that the thing that's interesting here is customers can also opt into something called informed network routing, where this is an opt-in thing. Cisco and Microsoft will share telemetry. Microsoft shares app telemetry. Cisco shares network telemetry. They share it with each other to help customers get to the, the best pop or site uh, as quickly as possible. Now, this was a, I initially found this a confusing announcement because Cisco was announcing features for WebEx and for Microsoft Teams, and yes. they were overlapping them. <laughs> together and it, and yes. and some of the tech sort of started tapping I, I i started to struggle how what feature relates to because uh teams is a microsoft product and webex of course is a cisco product so cisco has control over where it's hosted and there are features so the thing about microsoft teams is that it's hosted on a microsoft platform and it's on the internet mm -hmm. and you can't access it via a direct wan connection so if you're a certain type of person who believes in the unique uh, unique power of a dedicated wan connection or if you've got a, a sort of a belief that the internet is unreliable and can't be used for real business 
then this is this announcement is kind of for you because if you're in a situation where you want to access Teams, it's only available on the internet and you've got no, you have to face the reality that the internet is the future and you might not like that. Uh, and so what Cisco is announcing is that special features with Microsoft Teams to probe the optimal path to the Microsoft Teams data centers. Now, Microsoft is unique in the sense that it has uh, approaching 100 data centers globally. And finding the nearest data center is not necessarily the nearest geographically. It might be the nearest in performance. And the, the performance of the various data centers may vary. So if you are using Cisco's SD-WAN to access Microsoft Teams, then you can start to probe the Teams to determine the best path to Teams and make decisions about if you've got two or three public internet connections, what's the best way to get to it? Does that make sense? Yes, that's exactly right. That's what yeah. they're doing. Uh, and, and I agree that it's interesting in that, you know, Cisco is obviously competing against Microsoft with its own WebEx platform, and they're trying to make mm. that more easily consumable and more performant in their SD-WAN platform. But at the same time, they're giving, uh, they're integrating with Microsoft to also do the same. I think it's an acknowledgement by Cisco that they don't control the collaboration space and that their customers are using Microsoft 365 mm. and to keep them on the SD-WAN platform, then, hey, they're, they're willing to make SD uh, 365 experience as good as possible. The key here is that Microsoft Teams is not a very good product. It is unstable. It does crash. It doesn't work very well. Uh, some people say it works for them, but my generalized experience across the wider audience or the wider market is that it's pretty unstable and pretty buggy. And I'll bet a lot of people are saying, oh, it's the network. Oh, oh it's the internet. And this sort of plays into that narrative. And I would think that this is a product that, customers are asking for it. They're going to Cisco and saying, oh, the internet's unreliable. How can we make teams better? And Cisco goes, I got you. And it's, I think this feature is kind of not all that useful um, in the sense that if Microsoft ever gets teams to work, and it may well be that Microsoft never does. I mean, look at Microsoft Windows, still not stable after 30 years of development, billions of dollars of revenue, tens of thousands of developers working on the product, and it's still not secure or stable. It's, you know, so there's no reason to assume that Teams will ever get better. But there's also no reason to assume that Teams has a networking problem, and that's the course. Most likely, it's just Teams. And so I feel the majority of customers that do this are probably solving the wrong problem. Uh, but what they really should get is a visibility solution that monitors what's happening here. And if you can consistently see there's a problem related to Teams performance because of networking, then this is a solution to that. But I suspect that most people, if they had the visibility tools and put them in place, they would discover that Teams is just Teams and that this is just a waste of money. You're not actually solving a problem. You're trying to get, you're trying to solve a problem that you that doesn't necessarily exist. I'm sure Cisco would be happy to upsell you to, um, you know, Thousand Eyes or one of the other products mm. they acquired that do this visibility uh, because that's exactly what it's for to yeah. figure out is this a link problem, this is a problem at the application boundary and so yeah, on. Yeah, and this is where Cisco as a, a supplier has a weak point for customers. Cisco, this business unit that does SD-WAN is receiving requests from customers to help them fix the Teams problem. So they add this feature on. Does that make sense? But they can't add a visibility yep. solution on because that's part of another business unit and that would cross BU lines and cause conflict of interest. Um, so you as a customer needs to be buying smart here and know that you want thousand eyes or some other visibility solution. I would not, I would, you know, any one of those would be fine, but it needs to be a solution that's independent of the network. So whether you're SD-WAN, whether yep. you're direct WAN, whether you're internet connected, whether you're private WAN, it needs to be something that sits outside of all of that to give you... Um, a digital experience management tooling of some sort so that you can see what's happening. And, but I also know that 
Cisco is going to sell an awful lot of this because, <laughs> in my opinion, because it's just an add-on. It's like, oh, you're having problems. Why don't you buy this? And and customers will buy it, not really understanding or thinking perhaps uh, diligently through the whole process. So I mentioned the informed network routing capability that Cisco is touting with its Microsoft uh, 365 integration in that Cisco and Microsoft is sharing application telemetry with Cisco and Cisco sharing network telemetry with Microsoft. I, I was assuming as I was reading this, that that information will be exposed to the end user, to the administrator, particularly mm -hmm. the Microsoft application telemetry. It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like Cisco and Microsoft are keeping it for themselves mm -hmm. to do what I don't know with, but that would be a perfect addition to an SD-WAN platform to get more information about the application performance as opposed to just the network. Yeah, once you've got customer's data, information about the customer's experience, the customer's network, you can then sell that to another customer. So if you're doing monitoring of the internet backbone, like for example, Thousand Eyes or any other digital experience tool can aggregate all the data from all of the customers and you end up with a Facebook type of effect where they've got all the data about all the users and they can say, oh, you know, this part of Southern England is actually having networking problems. We know that because all of the users in this area across 200 mm. companies are having problems in that space. Does that make sense? And this is where AI yep. and big data and ML and blah, blah, blah is able to do that. And But they need your permission to get access to that data. And they're trying, I think a lot of vendors are taking the opportunity to find reasons to gather that data so they can then sell it back to you. So they can do something with it and then sell the results of that back to you, which is fine as long as you realize what you're getting into. I think the, the WebEx part is a little bit different. The WebEx is, is also the same pitch. That is, if you're running WebEx over the internet, it must not be very reliable. Therefore, you need tools so that you know to make it more reliable. That's also, for me, the same thing as, as Teams. I also find WebEx probably better than Teams in most cases, but still not great. I still believe the client to be unstable um, compared to, say, Zoom. Uh, but Cisco and Microsoft have much more committed. They're going to be building their metaverse around these platforms in time. They want to see these things turn into VR if that's the way the market goes, or they want to be able to provide integrated tooling. Like, you know, we've seen AI tools go onto the side of WebEx to calculate sentiment in meetings. Are people angry in meetings? Are people abusing people in meetings? Because we need to report that to managers. Is somebody swearing in a mm -hmm. meeting? Well, you know, that sort of stuff. So you're going to see a sort of an automated HR function in these tools in the years ahead. And they have to work reliably to do that. And that is a metaverse type thing. Does that? I'm not sure if I've explained that well at all, but I'll try. Maybe that's, I'll leave it there. The whole metaverse application to business world, I'm very skeptical of, but I'll also leave that there. One other thing I wanted to bring up because I don't want to spend the entire time on Cisco. Mm -hmm. So Cisco, this integrating WebEx with its SD-WAN platform, they're saying that this means that WebEx traffic can be distinguished from other internet traffic and sent over the best performing path. And I thought, well, yeah, that's the whole point of an SD-WAN. Does that mean that Cisco couldn't distinguish WebEx from other internet traffic prior to this? I'm confused about what the real advancement here is. And this, it just doesn't sound... Like these products are built to run over the internet. If you're now going to say that if they're running over, now there is definitely, let's let's be clear here, there is definitely parts of the world where the internet connections are poor and you may not be able to optimally run these products over the internet, but over your WAN connections. And it also has to be said that those same locations, you probably can't get enough bandwidth to run them over a private WAN. And you might want to make a routing decision as to whether you're sending them over a private WAN connection, a DSL or an ISDN or a frame relay, even if that's still out there in places of the world, or, you know, a DSL. And maybe what you want to be able to say is, well, my WebEx is running poorly. I'll send that out over the internet connection. That just sounds like SD-WAN to me. That doesn't sound like 
a special feature that you have to buy as part of your SD-WAN cloud on-ramp product. Now, keep in mind, this is all just part of Cisco's SD-WAN cloud on-ramp, and that's their cloud-hosted tool for cloud networking solution, and it's it's all about cloud integrations. So it's not their SD-WAN product. It's the multi-cloud networking product, okay? But I, I, I am confused that I my whole understanding of, of SD-WAN was that I'm supposed to be able to identify applications and then apply a policy based on an application. And if I couldn't distinguish mm. WebEx from other HTTP traffic before, and I can now, that, that seems like Cisco was yeah. kind of way behind. Yeah, but this is not the SD-WAN product here that's, that's getting this feature. It's Cisco's SD-WAN cloud on-ramp product, which is its multi-cloud networking. So you're talking about... AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, Equinox, Markup, Multiport. It's the software-defined networking overlay that happens outside of it. And the SD-WAN would be part of that. So you would have an SD-WAN and then this product would sit on top of that so you can collect it to public clouds. And this is then a feature inside that product. Got no. it. Okay. So again, <laughs> lots of well, this, yeah, this business unit is providing a feature that relates to its product. It might not be the right product for a customer. If you're trying to fix a certain problem, yeah. All right. All right. We'll leave it there. There's links in the show notes if you want to dig through the Cisco blogs yourself and see if you can try to figure out what's going on. Uh, we'll move on to Pluribus. They play in the software-defined networking space. They've announced new features in the latest version of their NetVisor Network OS and their adaptive cloud fabric SDN software, which makes a fabric of your data center. New features include a software-based packet broker, flow tracking, and the ability to track connectivity among containers. Yeah, this is interesting in the sense that Pluribus is, is a challenger to the data center networking space. And they're an up-and-comer. So they have to do something a little bit different to catch people's attention, in my view. And this is actually a gap in the in the system where there's three things that they're actually announcing in this announcement, the container visibility and the, the packet broker. But they're all kind of interrelated. One of the challenges with Kubernetes is when you start creating pods and then containers inside them, you lose visibility of the traffic that's going east-west inside of the Kubernetes because it goes... Um, you don't know where the container, the container can instantiate anywhere in a pod and you don't know where that is. So if you're trying to track uh, network data or locations of containers in the network, you lose sight of it. So what Pluribus has done with their SDN architecture is talk to the Kubernetes controller and they're now able to poll the API. They actually set themselves up as a streaming API and they receive the API data mm -hmm. and then they know where the container is and they feed that is. And so what that then allows you to do is to start saying, well, I want to do flow analysis of that container or I want to tap into the traffic in that container via a packet broker. And I think this is a unique feature in that it avoids service mesh. So many networking people need flow data or for threat analysis, or they want to be able to put a packet broker in to do intrusion detection or exfiltration of data. And once you go into a service mesh, you all of a sudden have another network, which is unconnected to everything. Whereas Pluribus can do this in the hardware, in a sense. Yeah, I took it as Pluribus isn't putting anything inside the Kubernetes cluster. They are not uh, a CNI, a container network interface. They're just pulling Kubernetes API so they can give you some basic visibility. What IPs are up there? Where are they physically located? What kind of communication is going on between containers? Which is useful, but it's not nearly a full-fledged container networking service at this point. I presume they have ambitions there, but right now they're saying, if you've got our fabric and you're doing some monitoring of um, flows already happening on the hardware side, we can also now give you some visibility visibility on your container side as well. So it's, I think, a toe in the water of the container network. Yeah, it is. I believe so. It's, a, it's You're getting visibility into the Kubernetes by taking a tap off. Now, this is, you know, the the way that a lot of vendors did with VMware. They they poll the v, vCenter 
And then with the vCenter, mm. they know where all of the VMs are in the physical infrastructure because they can get their ARP address and so forth. And so then right. you can say, oh, tell me where this VM is. And the SDN controller go, oh, yes, it's here. It's on port 24 of this switch here and port 28 on that switch over there and it's redundant, it's in an MLAG, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this is the same idea. The idea is not new, but Pluribus is one of the first people to do it in Kubernetes that I know of. But they're also combining it with Flow Tracker and Packet Broker. And the Packet Broking is really interesting because it wasn't so long ago that Packet Broker Fabrics were an entirely separate company. And there was four companies, each worth hundreds of millions of dollars as business, um, just selling yes. products that would you put in to taps of the network. And then you would you know, be able to send, capture the data on the wire and send it up to an IDS. And now it's increasingly becoming a standard feature of modern silicon. Right, and becoming a software feature. I think Big Switch was one of the first ones to develop a software-based packet broker, mm. and then it was acquired by Arista. Uh, and now you can do the same thing with the Pluribus. Again, they can replicate flows in the mm. fabric, and if you want to send it to third-party tool, that that's what it's for. But you don't have to buy and set up a, sec a separate hardware packet broker now. Yes, and this, and I mean, it's interesting to see the challenge of vendors like Pluribus, Arista, Juniper, you know, doing this as a standard feature. This idea of the packet broking as standard, while Cisco sees it as a billable extra. Um, and again, because Cisco is so large, it has a business unit dedicated to that feature and that business unit wants to get its funding separately from the other one and da 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 da, -da. <laughs> And I think increasingly what we're going to see over the next five years or what I'll be looking for is this idea of features that were previously unbundled, like separate and isolated, are converging down. A bit like SD-WAN. SD-WAN was WAN routing, then it was SD-WAN, then it was SAS, and now it's you know, CASB, Zero Trust, blah, blah, blah. All of these things are converging into new products. And, and you know, what was once, a, you know, a router is now a router firewall application inspection engine with a remote access VPN client all in a single solution. And same sort of thing is happening here where we're seeing switches go, packet brokers, flow trackers, uh, as well as tracking where your containers are and where your VMs are in the network. Right. And just for clarification, Pluribus uh, is all software. They're in the, essentially the white box market. They run on your standard Broadcom switches, um, but it's all software-based. Yeah. And the weird thing is that their controller is distributed in the switches. Right. You don't even need a server. Yeah, you don't need a server or anything like that. You just put the switches down, which is interesting because you can actually just deploy this as a pair of switches in your data center and start you know, a little greenfield in the middle of your brownfield. So if you just wanted to put this on your Kubernetes cluster, you could. All right, links in the show notes. If you want more, we'll move on. Uh, chip fabricators Western Digital and Kyogia have announced contamination issues at fabrication plants manufacturing flash memory. Ah, oh, welcome to today's obscure piece of information, courtesy of the <laughs> network break. Uh, this is two DRAM fabs in Japan announcing that contamination in the raw materials, as I understand it, has caused the failure of 6.5 exabytes of flash chips. Um, <laughs> it, so the analysis coming from thememoryguy.com he is saying that this contamination is serious, but it's probably not going to cause um, massive problems in the DRAM supply chain. Um, but what it does demonstrate it, to me, perhaps, is that this might be the signs that the stress on the supply chain is causing uh, errors or mistakes to creep in as factories are operating at maximum capacity to meet new demand. You know, so much profit to be made. Why would you not now drop you know, just drive your workers. <laughs> just put the pedal to the metal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he notes uh, in the article that 6.5 exabytes, it might sound like a lot of uh, contaminated flash, but uh, that's out of a total market of 1,260 exabytes. So it's it's a small, small percentage. I just figured, I think this is just a sign of stress along the supply chain. And, right. the, you know, <laughs> how do they know that the raw material was compromised after they've used it? 
you know, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> which must hurt, which must hurt. Yeah. So uh, interesting. It's just interesting to think about how the supply chain and how the interconnected of, of it all and how sometimes no matter what you do, something's going to go wrong. So maybe they didn't validate the inputs here, didn't test the, the raw material, or maybe it's not possible to, or maybe they've never done it before because it's never been a problem before. But either way, signs of stress in the supply chain are, are growing. Yes. All right. Speaking of interconnection, the register is reporting that a telecom company in Indonesia has signed a memorandum of understanding to deploy 18,000 kilometers of undersea fiber optic cable. It's going to connect hubs in Indonesia as well as the city of Darwin in Australia. And then eventually it's supposed to uh, reach Los Angeles and Portland in the United States. The cable is expected to have a capacity of 240 terabits per second. That's a lot of bandwidth. I think the angle here is not so much that this is um, a submarine cable connecting a very unconnected part of the world, which is good for everybody involved, I think. I think the challenge here is that submarine cables have always been a lot about politics and business. So governments Mm -hmm. tend to get involved and there's often financial support. Um, You can't just run a – you can run a submarine cable on the seabed, but you have to have approvals to enter international waters and things like this. Right. Right. And – so this project has largely been led by the Indonesian government. It's formed uh, by promoting its local telco, which is government-owned, to uh, run this cable out. So it's only an initial MOU, so it's not even like monies together and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the notable thing here is that the Australian government wants the same thing, not because they see it as a way to boost their economy, but because it puts another cable out of Australia. And there's not enough of them. The more you have, the better and the better connected you are. You know my motto in these things, more bandwidth solves all networking problems in the end, right? <laughs> so right. Um, so props to Simon Sharwood at the register for finding this, for finding this one out and then being able to write up a little bit. Um, I found a new submarine cable map this week. You can go and search for it, but there's a new one here at Subtel Forum. And Subtel Forum is an interesting body, Drew, because it's actually a body where all of the submarine cables go to share information and then argue over who gets the 11 ships in the world that lay cables. Oh, wow. Mm. So Yeah, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's an interesting place. You want to go and check it out because it's not like, oh, I go and hire a ship. They actually have to argue over who can get it next because my cable's broken and stuff like that. That's how they were able to send a ship to fix up the Tonga internet connection because somebody's ship, you know, cable lane got put on hold, right, <laughs> so, to fix up the Tonga cable. So how do you how do you – solve those disputes? And the answer is there's an international body uh, coordinating all that. It's fun. Fun. I, I feel like there's a joke in here somewhere about token ring and, and ships that lay cable. I'm <laughs> trying to put it together. but Like that whole submarine cable thing is a bonkers industry. Like, you know, billions of dollars <laughs> to put cable on the bottom of the ocean floor and, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and the technology just goes obsolete fairly quickly. And, uh, yeah. All right, the link is in the show notes if you want to see that uh, submarine cable Mac. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. When your data center network supports tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of servers, you can't manage that network switch by switch. You need a data center fabric that enables automation, observability, and a NetOps-driven approach. Nokia's SR Linux Network OS and its fabric services system creates a data center fabric that integrates smoothly with cloud-native app design so that network services can be more easily consumed by workloads, even as those workloads get changed in the ever-turning cycle of DevOps. This consumption-based 
approach helps web scalers and service providers compete against even the biggest cloud providers, and it's anchored by Nokia's automation-friendly NOS, streaming telemetry that delivers deep visibility, and a software-defined fabric that enables faster provisioning, service delivery, and troubleshooting. To get more details and find out why 2022 is the year of the consumable data center network, go to nokia.ly slash consumable networks. That's nokia.ly slash consumable networks. We thank Nokia for being a sponsor. Back to the news, SoftBank has announced its plans to take chip designer Arm public. In a letter dated February 8th, the company declared the potential acquisition by NVIDIA has been terminated and SoftBank is pivoting to a public offering. Yeah, lots of fun here. Um, we talked about this last week. Obviously, the UK and the Chinese regulators have indicated the deal will be reviewed and then uh, eventually um, decided that effectively what they're signaling is that they don't really want this deal to go ahead. And yep. that in the end, put the kibosh on it and really nothing you do is going to change that. The US FTC announced a review, but they're not really significant compared to the EU contracts, uh, the EU regulator and the UK regulator, because they're the ones who really control what would happen. The EU has control because it has much more stringent regulations over what's allowed and what's not allowed compared to the US and the China one, you know, whatever. So at the end of the day, the ARM CPUs are dominant in the mobile market, and I see this as good and bad. I don't think this is necessarily just bad or just good. Um, ARM is increasingly seen as um, critical to increasing compute power in off-prem cloud. So we're seeing Azure and AWS and Google say ARM CPUs are a big part and you can buy instances in our network and, and things like that. Um, it doesn't replace the x86, but it certainly adds a new type of server and capability for certain types of workloads. So um, without going too deeply in it, there's certain types of software that you can run that works better in terms of power consumption on um, CPU workloads and substantially cheaper than an x86. And so that's good for customers in the sense that now the cloud companies can force Intel to negotiate a decent price on their x86 CPUs. They don't have to just pay whatever Intel wants to charge them by having ARM. And increasingly, what we're seeing is that if you're large enough, you can actually go and buy an ARM license and design your own chip. AWS, for example, is heading down that track, at least publicly so. So um, NVIDIA will still have access to ARM as a licensee, but what it right. does lose is the ability to get control over the future map of ARM or the ability right. to add extensions to the ARM CPU designs that only NVIDIA could use, or it could give itself a competitive advantage. And, exactly. And that, of course, is why the other bodies, you know, the UK government doesn't want to let ARM go because ARM is based in the UK, headquartered here, and they don't want it to leave here. The Europeans want to make sure that there's plenty of competition in the market and it's not dominated by a couple of US companies. China doesn't want to lose access to ARM CPUs. I don't think this deal was ever going to go through. And uh, the fight now moves into if ARM is going to be listed publicly, where do they list it? On the New York Stock Exchange? Do they list it on the NASDAQ? Or do they list it on the London Stock Exchange, as the UK government would want? Or maybe they even go for European Union listing, or do they list it on all of them or not, you know, whatever. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. So the guy, you know, the the you know, a company of this size, you know, twenty billion dollar listing, I think, forty billion listing. Um, yeah, lots lots happening there. So, so far, the SoftBank CEO has signaled that he wants it to come out on the NASDAQ in the U.S., um, and maybe that's, you know, kind of his opening salvo in a negotiation process uh, with uh, British stakeholders who would like to see it on the, the London, was it the FTSE? Yeah, FTSE, yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so that will be interesting to watch. Uh, I should also note that um, when SoftBank and NVIDIA first struck the uh, acquisition deal, NVIDIA had to put down a $1.25 billion guarantee that if the deal went south, SoftBank would get that money. And SoftBank says, we're taking that money. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so a nice, a nice little payday for SoftBank, which they are mm -hmm. applying directly to their fourth quarter revenue, they said in their letter. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens. That, you know, usually these contracts, the deposit is not normally just like, you, you put down a deposit and you lose it if you don't get through. There might well be other conditions in there. Maybe NVIDIA gets to put the $1.25 billion against future purchases or something like that. You just never know what the actual details are. Right. There could be other details, but according to the letter, it sounds like uh, SoftBank is taking the money and running. We'll, we'll see how that plays out as well. I'm almost certain there's a cash payout, but then the money might be actually used against other things in the future if the break. Depends on what the agreement was, of course. So, Right, mm. right. Uh, moving on, an appeals court judge has vacated a ruling that would have required Apple and Broadcom to pay a combined $1.1 billion fine for violating wireless patents held by Caltech here in the United States. The judge upheld two out of three patent violations, but required that a new trial be held to determine the actual damages. Yeah, I mean, this court, this uh, court case has been going on for a long time, if I remember right, like a decade or so? I don't know for a decade, but I think since at least 2016, yeah. Yeah, I thought it started in 2011 and then in 2016 went to court and it's been could be, yeah. motoring on. And this is back in the days when a lot of the universities uh, believed that they owned certain patent rights around the Wi-Fi standards, the early Wi-Fi standards, mm -hmm. but they weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't asserted in the standards bodies of the era. And uh, these court cases led to what we have now today in IEEE, particularly where... Uh, vendors fight to get their their patents included in there because they've tightened up the conditions about what technologies are allowed to be included um, in the standards and so forth. Um, and so once you get them in, you get a guaranteed revenue stream. It's called FRAND, Fair, Reasonable, and Non-Discriminatory License. It's things like um, the RJ connectors. Some of the RJ connectors, you actually pay five cents every time to the company that invented the connector. Mm -hmm. True story, mm -hmm. by the way. Or I think it's I, much. I believe it. Yep. Yeah, it's it's just like in, in the early days it was five cents. I think it's now down to one percent or something. But when you mm -hmm. think of the millions and millions of RJ connectors out there, <laughs> so um, there are, and you wouldn't believe how much science goes into the design of some of those connectors. Like the LC fiber optic connector, still pays patent fees to somebody today. Uh, it's not open. It's standardized. It's not open. And it's not right. free of patents or free of cost. If you're going to make it, theoretically, you have to pay licensing fees, uh, patent fees to the original ones. And so that's what it is. So this is in that vein. Um, the fact that it's just coming around is kind of like, yeah, okay. But I also think the big vendors sometimes fight these, not on financial basis, but on preventing anybody else from taking them on. Uh -huh. So under the previous ruling, Apple had been fined $837 million and Broadcom $270 million. There will be a new trial to determine how much they will have to pay. Uh, I'm kind of curious which is cheaper, paying the lawyers or just having paid the licensing fee up front? <laughs> well, $1.1 billion in, in uh, fines. That's an awful lot of lawyers. But <laughs> That's true. It would take a lot of lawyers to get to $1 billion, Yeah, and when you get court cases like this, yet. they take on a certain, you know, we can't give in to these. We need to make sure that it doesn't. Right. It's, it's putting a stake in the ground as much yeah. as it is about money. If I'm going to get $1.1 billion in patent fees for violating patents that I've held, well, I'll start litigating those patents. It actually attracts yes. the lawyers if it sticks. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
All right, our last story for the day, space networking. Uh, 40 recently launched Starlink satellites are falling back to Earth or have fallen back to Earth after a geomagnetic storm caused by a massive ejection of plasma from the sun, increased atmospheric drag. Uh, these satellites were unable to reach their highest orbit, uh, so they've plunged back into the Earth's atmosphere and according to Starlink are burning up and will not hit the ground. So complicated story here, and I will try and link to a YouTube video which explains what went wrong. But basically, SpaceX um, has to pick up the pace of launching its satellites if it wants to uh, build out its network to meet the demand that it's got sitting there and also needs to get to put its foot in space to prevent competitors from emerging. And this has mm -hmm. the sense of, oh, we'll just launch it anyway and, sit, and so what if it doesn't make it? And then like, oh, made a mistake. <laughs> does that make sense? Apparently, there was a warning. There is a a, yeah. a, a, a body that does space weather, essentially, mm -hmm. and they did say it looks like a storm is coming and the storm will increase drag that will make it harder to get these satellites into the orbit they need. Mm -hmm. But Starlink, for whatever reason, said do it anyway, and they lost 40 of those satellites. Yeah. So what happens is the rocket goes up to a certain height, and once it reaches, uh, there's still atmosphere there, and there's a mesosphere and the stratosphere, and the mesosphere is the the atmospheric layer above above the line, right? And in mm -hmm. the event of a geomagnet, a, a solar storm, it heats that up, and that air um, actually gets thicker. Mm -hmm. It's all just take my word for it, and that creates drag <laughs> on the satellites. And then what happens is. Uh, when the satellites were released, they used the internal gyros to turn sideways into the solar storm. So these these satellites are thin, long and thin. And so while for the duration of the storm, they were supposed to use an internal gyro horizontally aligned so that the narrow side was facing towards the sun so that they would have minimal impact while the right. solar storm went past. And then the gyros were then supposed to fire up and twist them back the other way. Now, in part because the atmosphere was thicker, and in part because the solar magnetic storm ran for so long and they weren't able to get their solar panels out and charge the batteries, they failed to be able to then enable the ion thrusters so that they couldn't get up to um, orbit. And so now they're going down. So multiple things working against them. I suspect that SpaceX will learn from this and possibly not do it again. Possibly. But it does have urgent business incentives to take risks like this that it wouldn't normally. And that is it has to that get there before its competitors do. Yeah, and I note that in the, the release that uh, Starlink put out, they are insisting that there will be no additional um, space debris caused by this uh, failure of the satellites, um, which I don't know how they can be sure of that. I also am not 100% sure they can guarantee that the satellites will all burn up safely in the atmosphere, but that's what they're saying is happening. Well, they will because they're, they're microsatellites. They're not very large. They're only like 10 centimeter cubes. Mm. So they, they mm. will okay. certainly burn up. Uh, and they certainly will return to Earth. That is, they won't be endlessly orbiting because they never got to orbit. They got mm -hmm. to a um, launch orbit, but then they were supposed to elevate up to the orbit that they need. And because none of them got up to that height except for nine, um, they will certainly return. So they won't be – that's a bit like gilding the lily. That's like uh, having a car head-on car accident and saying, thank goodness we didn't hit the tree on the side of the road. <laughs> I mean, you got to accentuate the positive. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I said this really feels like, yeah, you know, oh, it'll be right. We'll send them up. It's fine. Go, go, go. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oops, we start, we mucked that up, you know. Oh. <laughs> Next time, pay attention to the forecast. Yeah, that's right, yeah. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read about it yourself. Um, that does wrap up our show. We don't have a Tech Bytes today. So, Greg, where can folks find you on the internet if they want more of your dulcet musings? Uh, I have been uh, picking up the pace on my tweets. If you're into just tracking things, I try to keep my tweets just to focus on useful information and links that you might be relevant to so it's not – I'm not wasting your time telling you about my favorite hobby of oil painting or something. 
uh, at Ethereal Mind. And I've also started to pick up the pace on blogging on my uh, personal blog at etherealmind.com. And uh, don't forget our newsletter, Drew, which is always good. Yeah, the Human Infrastructure Newsletter comes out every Thursday. You can sign up for it for free at packetpushers.net slash newsletter if you're interested in getting uh, the best of the internet every week delivered to you, plus uh, the occasional essay on life in IT. All right, thanks to our sponsor, Nokia. As always, thanks for listening.